just as another example, why do some people respond to stress by eating, comfort eating? And how come some people respond to stress by not eating? My wife, the moment she feels a bit stressed, she goes, I've lost my appetite. I can't eat now. I've, I've can't eat. Me, I back myself into a bowl of noodles <laughs> because I'm going, oh, my stress. I need a bowl of noodles. Oh, my God. And so this is what I study. I've studied why people behave differently around food. Oh, I love this so much. And I could literally eat it up. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, hey, veggie lovers. Welcome to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Today I have with me Dr. Giles Yo. I'm so excited about this interview. It was really great. And so I can't wait for you to hear it. Before you listen to this podcast, though, I want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, or your own for that matter, please consult a physician. Okay, so this episode is about body size and genetics. And Dr. Giles Yo is a molecular geneticist. So he got his PhD in molecular genetics from the University of Cambridge in 1998, after which he joined the lab of Professor Sir Stephen O'Reilly, working on the genetics of severe human obesity. Giles Yeo is now a program leader at the MRC Metabolic Diseases Unit in Cambridge, and his research currently focuses on the influence of genes on feeding behavior and body weight. In addition, he is a graduate tutor and fellow of Wolfson College and honorary president of the British Dietetic Association. Giles is also a broadcaster and author presenting science documentaries for the BBC and hosts a podcast called Dr. Giles Yo Choose the Fat. His first book, Gene Eating, was published in December 2018, and his second book, Why Calories Don't Count, came out in June 2021. Giles was appointed an MBE in the Queen's 2020 Birthday Honors for Services to Research, Communication, and Engagement. And I have no clue what that means, but it's the Queen, so sounds amazing. Congratulations, Dr. Yo. So in this episode, we talk about whether he believes obesity is a disease. Is there such a thing as an ideal body weight? Is body weight a choice? Are people responsible for the size of their bodies? What about for the size of their children's bodies? We also talk about the complexity of genetics when it comes to body shape and body size or how much fat we accumulate. We also talk about why people don't realize that genetics play such a strong factor in the size of our bodies. We talk about his month-long experience in eating a plant-based diet and how he eats now. And if it's possible to improve metabolic and health markers with dietary changes without weight loss. We also talk about de novo lipogenesis and his thoughts about whether carbohydrates 
are significantly converted into fat if you're eating excess calories as from carbohydrates. It was really a great episode. He's super smart. He's a researcher. Great answers to the questions. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So thank you so much for joining us. And now introducing Dr. Giles Yo. Dr. Giles Yo, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to come speak to a whole new platform of people. Yes. And well, we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but most of my listeners are plant-based vegan. But the reason I'm so interested in talking to you is because I am incredibly interested in learning more about the genetics of body size, because it's not something that we talk about a lot. It's not something that people even think about or understand. But before I get to some of those questions, how did you even get into this type of research? Is it something that you've been passionate about since you were young? Or was it one of those things that it just was happenstance along your career? It, it, was, it was happenstance, but quite early in my career. So when I was a PhD student, so I, I've always been a geneticist. So I've always done genetics as an undergrad. I was at uh, Cal Berkeley. Um, and, and then when I moved to Cambridge to do my PhD. But my PhD in Cambridge was on... Was on Genetics of the Japanese pufferfish, fugu rupa bees. So, because DNA is DNA, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what creature it comes from. But when I finished, I, I realized that genetics of pufferfish was not going to pay my mortgage or my rent or anything for that matter. And so that's when I started looking around for a job. I was a geneticist, and it was by chance I knocked on a door, um, and it was um, Professor Steve Ratley who had just. Uh, uh, you know, discovered one of the first genes that when remutated resulted in severe obesity. I just happened to be a geneticist looking for a job. I got hired and that's it. And this was 1997. And then so I started in severe obesity and then very, very, very severe obesity. And now I'm looking at it more broadly at just genetics of body weight, uh, um, skinny, medium or large. Obesity just happens to be what we focus on. Well, thank you so much for that work. I think it is so important and so valuable. And it's so relevant, right? Because it it is something that we talk about. The headlines are talking about body size every day. There's this big panic. But I think we need to understand more about why. Why does our body do this? Why why does the human being do this? So thank you for, for doing this work. In your opinion, is obesity a disease? It's a good question. I've been asked this many times. In my opinion, it is a disease. And, I, and, and people say, well, is it? Do you really want to medicalize the condition? And I do to an extent. And here's the reason why I think it's a disease. I think it's a disease because carrying too much fat gets you ill. People can carry different amounts of fat, but they, it does get you ill. That's the first thing. And secondly, because by using the term disease, you remove away People think that obesity is fully a choice, it's a personal responsible issue, and that people who end up with obesity are bad people. This is, this is a big issue, okay? And the government, our government thinks this, I believe the United States government also thinks this. As a result, the resources are not being put in the right place to try and solve the problem. So I like the term um, obesity as a disease because I do think it's, it causes many, many diseases. Um, and by using the term disease, we pressurize the people that control the dollars and pounds to put the money in the right place to try and solve it as it is. Mm -hmm. Do you think that using the term disease helps the weight stigma issue or hurts it? I 
Okay, that's, a, that's another very good question. Let's put it this way. If I were talking about someone that has um, cancer, or if I was talking about someone who has asthma, are there people with asthma stigma? I mean, if you have asthma, you have asthma. Sometimes you have the inhaler. If you've got cancer, well, certainly there's no, I, I'd like to think there's no stigma there. There's sympathy, there's empathy, all kinds of pathies that you actually deal with it. It's, or if you have a bad knee, do you have bad knee stigma? No, but you have weight stigma. And so I think the stigma is there already. And so using the term disease is not going to add more stigma. I'm trying to use it to remove stigma. So interesting. I just think it's so hard because I see body weight as such a flexible, broad range, right? And so ugh, like to me, it's like difficult to wrap my brain around it because you think of something that seems unnatural, but is really natural, like pregnancy, right? Like pregnancy is wild. It's wild. But we don't call pregnancy a disease, even though really wild things happen during pregnancy. You know, not just the weight gain, but all of the changes in hormones and all of the, the symptoms you have with pregnancy. So I think that's the part that I struggle with in calling it a disease and that, okay, who is the diseased person? Is it, can we really use this body mass index to cut somebody off and be like, okay, now that you're over 30, are you diseased? Or is it 35 or is it 27 or 25? Really, where does the disease truly start? Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I do. I do. So I, I think let's go with what does obesity mean? Why don't we let's remove the word disease from it for a moment and let's just deal with some just definitions. And, and BMI 30 is what the clinical definition of obesity is, but that's a very poor definition. And it's a very poor definition because it's a very average definition. And to be fair, it's a definition that has emerged from um, study of white Northern Europeans largely initially, because that's where BMI is have actually come from. So I think we need a better uh, explanation for obesity. And obesity affects your health. So therefore, obesity is when you are carrying too much fat that it begins to influence your health. Now, then we can ask the question, well, how much fat is too much fat? That depends on who you are. That does depend on who you are. It depends on your ethnicity. It depends on many, many di di different things. And then we begin to have a more nuanced discussion right, about what obesity is. Because every, the moment you get to a certain, the moment you surpass your safe ability to store fat, all of us individually, we will become ill, okay? Now, for some people, that is larger than others. For other people, you're really skinny and you, and, and you, and you, bec you become ill. But that's, so you can be skinny, but yet have obesity because the fat is already influencing, influencing your health. Um, that's what I think obesity should mean. And so the moment we then deal with that, it means that it becomes a disease when the fat in your body is too much that it begins, begins to cause you health problems. I love that. Thank you so much for that nuance. I think that's so important. So basically what you're saying is when each individual surpasses their natural fat storage, safe fat storage ability, then they may start to develop visceral fat, which we know that that's different than the subcutaneous fat. I happen to have very advantageous ability to carry a lot of subcutaneous fat. So I can carry it around in my butt and my legs, no problem. <laughs> and so, but some people are different. And in your book, you do talk about that. We know that there are certain populations where there's that lower capacity, for example, Asians. So 
I've even Mm -hmm. seen it proposed, and not everybody knows this or uses this, but that for Asians, the BMI BMI cutoffs might be lower. But again, I think even that has to be individualized, right? Like, I don't think we could just look at numbers flat across the board. Every person needs to understand for themselves where their health risks may start. Absolutely. So, um, so this is work that's actually that was actually done here in Cambridge, not by not by me, but my colleagues, trying to find a trying to find genetic markers for this safe fat carrying capacity. Because because the, the, the question that people always ask is, well, how do I know? How do I know? And that, it's a very good question. It's difficult to measure biologically at the moment, but if we can get a genetic angle on it, if we could take your twenty three and Me and other genetic tests tests are available. Um, and use that to try and predict whether or not you are low, medium, and high, or how close you are to your fat carrying capacity, then I think we can begin to really have a more nuanced view of it. We're not there yet. And this is the, this is, unfortunately, we're not there yet. Um, but I think we do know when we become metabolically ill. And we can measure things that are, that are simple, like, for example, your glucose levels and fasting, or you can measure your insulin levels. That's more difficult. Um, but I think where you store your fat is a good indicator of of how um, healthy or unhealthy you're likely to be. So your waist to hip ratio, you know, how how looking at your visceral fat. So I think we are approaching. I would like to think you might ask me when a decade maybe away from from having a really good genetic marker for identifying people at risk for becoming ill without becoming too obese. Okay, that's great. And that and we'll be looking for that research eventually. How about ideal body weight? So this gets used a lot, like find your ideal body weight and you can calculate ideal body weight. Do you believe that there is such a thing as ideal body weight? I think it dep- <laughs> I think it depends what you are doing. So do I think that there is a range of weight in every individual? that is ideal for their health. I think there probably is a range. So not a specific, not, not 125 pounds, you know, but I think there probably is a range where 125 to 135 pounds, depending on your heights, depending on your ethnicity, and crucially, depending on what you're doing. But my view has always been this. Our vision of, the problem is we tie weight to beauty in, in, in today's society, intimately linked, your weight to your beauty. And so people want to look good. And look, I don't mind. I want to look good. I want to look like Brad Pitt, but I don't look like Brad Pitt. So there, there are many, there, there are all kinds of challenges that are, that, that are involved with that. But I think what we got to think about is more, is there, um, and are you able to do what you want to do with the weight that you have? If you have kids, are you able to play with them? Are you able to double up the stairs? Do you get breathless if you're doing something? So I think if you are healthy, doing what you're doing, playing with your kids, your grandkids, whatever it is you're doing, and you happen to not look as good as you want, that's a very different question um, um, for asking. So I think we need to think about health rather than the weight would be my view. Yes, thank you. I agree 100%. And I also agree that it is so difficult to separate the two because we have been conditioned from birth. Children as young as three years old already have weight bias. And so when you live your entire life this way, your entire life trying to look a certain way, it can be really difficult to separate that wanting to look a certain way because you feel like it's going to be more socially acceptable and being at a certain weight range that you can do all the things you want to do and you feel good. So thank you for answering in that way. 
I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question because I know that you have said this over and over and over again in your social media and both of your books, but is body weight a choice? I don't think it is a choice, and, and um, unsurprisingly. And I don't think it's a choice for a number of different reasons. So for two different reasons. So there is, there is a biological role for, 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 for it. And so therefore, your biology, while it doesn't determine who you are, really strongly pushes you in, in, in a direction. So there's a biological reason for many people that it's not a choice. But actually, there are non-biological explanations as well. Socioeconomic class, for example. Okay, then that is also not, not a choice. So for, for example, I don't know if the numbers are going to be the same in the US, but in the UK, if you take a look at the bottom um, 20% uh, in terms of socioeconomic class, so, so people who are the poorest in society, and compare them to the top 20%, okay, the rates of obesity are double. They're double in the poorest to the, most, to, to the richest, in, 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 certainly in the UK. There are no genetic differences between rich and poor, accident of birth. And so there is another example of how really it's not a choice, where due to your accident of birth, where you live, you can actually end up with, with, with obesity. So it's going to be a mix of reasons, biological, genetic reasons, which is what I study on a day-to-day -day basis, but also from a socioeconomic, social reason, it is also not a choice for many people how you end up looking because there is very little choice for those who are poor of what they end up eating. Yeah, it's so complex. And I think we all have to realize that, that there's so many factors that go into body size. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. Are we responsible for the size of our bodies? Even if body weight is not a choice, are we responsible for doing something about it if we get to a point where it becomes unhealthy? And then a follow-up question for that, for parents, are parents responsible for the size of their children's bodies? That's a very good question. Um, I think there has to be some element of personal responsibility, okay? Um, because it's our health, it's our children's health, and ultimately we uh, are responsible for what we put up on the plates in order, to, in, in order to feed ourselves. But we can't only be looking at it from personal responsibility because, um, so what we study is susceptibility to, to obesity, biological, okay? Biological susceptibility. And we know, for example, that for some people, they're just slightly less likely to say no to food. But not a lot. You know, I'm not talking like they don't eat twice as much as someone else. They may eat 5% as much as someone else, a few percentage points. The interesting thing about body weight, unlike some other characteristics such as blood pressure or anything like that, it builds. It builds over time. Okay, your blood pressure gets to a certain level and stops. It's high. Oh my God, we got to try and fix it. Whereas your body weight, if you have a few calories extra every day, it sort of adds on to you so that after 20 years, suddenly, oh my God, how come, how come I'm you know, you know, 15 pounds heavier than, than, than I used to be? So over that kind of period of time, if you have a small chance of saying yes, you know, compared to someone else over, over those many years, it is not a choice. So in, in casino terms, in casino terms, the house always wins. And the house always wins because the die are just slightly weighted to, to, to something. So if you throw the die often enough, you, you'll end up winning or losing depending on who you are. Yeah, I love that answer. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question and one that I ask to a lot of my guests. So thank you for that. You've started talking a little bit about this, but I want to talk more about this because we don't think about it this way. Earlier in the interview, you talked about how there are genes that make us more likely to have certain body types and shapes. Like I am a classic pair, like I said, 
earlier, smaller upper body, I carry all my weight in my lower body, my fat gets stored there, my butt and my thighs. Some people might be more apple shape. Some people, the whole family looks like tall, lean, you know, string beans. And so I think we maybe a little bit understand that, but still when it comes to body size and body weight, the assumption is not usually, oh, that's genetic. Most of the time people think they did this to themselves. That's their choice. They ate too much, whatever. But maybe a little bit, we might think if families look a certain way, they're going to have kids that look a certain way. But when it comes to genetics, it's more complex than that. Like you're saying, our genes can also influence our behaviors. So I'm a foodie. I love food. I've never missed a meal in my life. Like food is exciting. I have one son by birth. He definitely inherited those genes. Like when we're done with a meal, we're already talking about what the next meal is going to be. We're those types of people. Sometimes in the middle of the meal, we're already talking about the next meal. Okay. I hear you. I hear you. However, what's very interesting is that my younger son is adopted and he shares no genes with anybody in the household. And he's completely different. He lives in our same house with three foodies, but you know, he likes to eat, he likes food, but he is the kind of person that as soon as he's full, he stops. It doesn't matter if there's the most luscious, dripping chocolate cake in front of him. He's done. He's done. And if he's engrossed in something, you cannot bother him to come eat. He would rather just continue his task for hours and not eat. Whereas me and my older son, food is number one priority. So that has been a lesson for me. And like, wow. And my younger son has been with us since he was little, 18 months. So he's been, and he's 13. So it's been a long time that he could be influenced by all of our behaviors and how we approach food, but he remains the same. So talk to us a little bit about how genetics can influence these habits that we assume people are doing on purpose, I guess. I don't know if that's worded the right way, but I think you know what I'm getting at. So I think, first of all, just let me take it to, 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 to the top, okay, and just uh, tell people that there is a difference between your body shape and your body size, okay, genetically. So your body shape is ultimately where you put your fat. People think it's their muscles, but it's largely fat, okay? So, so if you've got a, like you said, do I have a big bum? Do I have a big tummy? Um, 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 that kind of thing. And genetically, it doesn't, it's completely independent from how much fat you carry. So in other words, you can be a skinny person with a larger bum, or you can be totally skinny, or you can be a skinny person that happens to put weight on their, on their tummy. So where you put your fat genetically is completely separate. So therefore, body shape, people, you can tell, uh, you, you can tell people shapes, silhouettes, okay, for that. Now, so that is, those genes have function within fat, okay, them, themselves. Now, if you actually look at the genetics of body weight, which is how much fat you have, independent of where you put it, ah, now those genes all function within the brain and where we know their function influences our feeding behavior. So let, let, just let me give you an example of what I mean by feeding behavior. This is what I call the Monday morning meeting scenario. Okay. And so we've all been there. We've been to a meeting. Okay. Okay. Maybe not in the past three years when we had it on Zoom, <laughs> but now we're meeting back in person again. You go to a meeting. Okay, and someone slides a plate of cookies onto the table. So I, I'm going to argue that there are a minimum of four different types of feeding behavior in response to those cookies. You have the people who, before me, 
before the plate even stops sliding, I've already picked the cookie up. Okay. Now then is <laughs> exactly. Then there's the second type of person who longs for the cookie. They want the cookie. They desire the cookie. But for whatever internal algorithm, they don't pick the cookie up. Then there's the third kind of person, which is the most annoying people to me, who don't even know the cookies are there. They're going, they, they, they've ignored the cookie. And then there's the fourth kind of person who are eating the cookie without even knowing that they're eating the cookie. D- did you enjoy the cookie? What cookie? And they're, they're eating the cookie. And it's a little bit funny, except it's not. Because now, if you can think, well, who are you in that scenario? And you can say, well, I'm the guy who picked up the cookie. Who I eat without thinking. Oh, I didn't even notice the cookie was there. This could be, for example, your youngest, uh, your, your youngest son. These are not imagined uh, uh, behaviors, but these are the kind of feeding behaviors that have a biological input. Some people love food. Some people use food as fuel. Other people take more food to actually get full up. So these are the genes and the pathways we're interested in studying. Why? Why, 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 why is that the case? One more example, then I'll shut up. So, so, so just as an, another example, why do some people respond to stress by eating, comfort eating? And how come some people respond to stress by not eating? My wife, the moment she feels a bit stressed, she goes, I've lost my appetite. I can't eat. I can't eat. Me, I back myself into a bowl of noodles <laughs> because I'm going, oh, my stress. I need a bowl of noodles. Oh, my God. And so this is what I study. I've studied why people behave differently around food. Oh, I love this so much. And I could literally eat it up. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to. And they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you wanna give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens, and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing! Because I feel it so much. I also get annoyed by the people who don't see the cookies 
and who stop eating when they're stressed. Because I'm the same. Like as soon as I feel stress, I'm already planning what I'm going to eat to soothe myself, which I think probably partially genetic biological. But I wonder what your thoughts are on scarcity. And I know you talk about food insecurity. And when you talk about food insecurity, I didn't really see you talk about this because I'm interested in my genetics, people like me who already find food so valuable. When Mm. it becomes scarce, are we more likely to overfocus on it? Because that's what I've noticed with my older son as well. Like any restriction turns up the volume. So with my decades of dieting, have I caused this biological drive to become even stronger? So that's something that I've been curious about. I think another way of putting the question is when you diet and, 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 yo- when, and most people who diet over their life have yo-yo dieted, okay, to, to, to an extent. To an extent, some people larger yo-yoing than, than, than others. Does it cause a vicious cycle, I guess is the question. In other words, by dieting, do you make it worse because you make yourself fixate on food more? Um, I don't know the answer. I think the ev- the evidence points that yo-yo dieting does make things worse. So in other words, people tend to sort of, when they yo-yo diet, their weight comes back up. It comes back up to a level just slightly higher than it was before. And as you continue through life, you sort of, you, you, you sort of move upwards. The mechanisms are unclear and people are trying to study and trying to understand this. But I think the phenomenon, the phenomenon is real, at least for some people. So I don't know if it's making it Worse, is it? Is there some uh, rewiring within the brain? And this is what we're actually trying to study. Evolutionarily speaking, okay, I think because the vast, for the vast majority of human history, human evolution, we never had enough food. Okay, this is this the too much food scenario is something that has happened over the past thirty years. Prior to that, unless you were really rich or were the king or 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 the chief or whatever it is. Really, most of us didn't have enough, have enough food. So any genetic advantage, genetic drive to make you more acutely attuned to food um, was beneficial to you and from village life scenario, more beneficial to the village, right? Because you needed the hunters and the people that, the, the, who dug the, the, the turnips and stuff to be acutely aware of where these things were so that you either fed yourself, your family, or, 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 or the village. So it is only Let's put it this way. We have evolved to survive in a feast-famine scenario. So sometimes there's food, sometimes they won't. Our problems are that we now live in a feast-feast environment. And so with our genes that are feast-famine genes in a feast-feast environment, a lot of us are just hardwired to eat whenever there's food in front of us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the reason I bring that up is because I'm also interested in food insecurity and these disparities, because I've read some research that shows that children, I'm a pediatrician, so I'm interested in children, Mm -hmm. children in particular, that they've studied in food insecurity environments tend to overeat, eat when they're not hungry, and snack more when food is available. And so they're going to have these times when food may not be available, right? Because the paycheck ran out or whatever. And because there's such a stigma and because children in food insecure environments tend to be two times more likely to be obese or overweight, have higher body weight, yep. the mothers who are anxious about their children's weight are restricting them on top of that. So not only is there scarcity because sometimes the paycheck runs out and there may not be very much food for a few days, 
But then when they are, when food is available, the moms feeling anxious about their child's body weight, it's like, stop eating, you've had enough, no more. So it's like double food scarcity that I feel could partially explain this increased snacking, eating past hunger, eating when not hungry, those kinds of things. So I find that all very interesting. And another reason that could explain why there's such a disparity in, si- in body size. I think, you're, I think you're right. I mean, there's going to be uh, the reasons for the reasons you say that we don't understand. We, I'm assuming that we're sort of in inverted commas, middle class, academic class. We don't have food insecurity. Okay. You, you and me speaking here. We don't, I know what I'm going to have but for dinner. I got no issues with this. Um, so it is difficult for us to understand why someone will make the decisions they're making to feed their kids and, 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 and to feed themselves and how they can be stressed about that. So that's the first thing, the, the explanation you gave. And I think that is a very, very um, um, plausible explanation. The second explanation is also the type of foods that are actually available to them. And if you are cash poor, time poor, and cash poor, what happens to those two things is you lack choices. And so now you're in a situation where, look, unfortunately, the society we live in at the moment, the unhealthiest foods happen to be the cheapest most of the time, okay? And healthy foods, healthy diets... You and I can make those decisions, but they tend to be more expensive. And so you mix that in with suddenly cash and time poor individuals trying to feed the kids. And then you end up going, well, look, I, I can't really be concerned about, because at the moment, I'm just concerned about energy and feeding the kids. And they have a more unhealthy diet. So on top of being um, scared and stressed about trying to, feed their, trying to feed their families, they're now in a situation where the cheapest things that are available are unhealthy uh, to them. So it's the mix, the toxic mix of those two things, which ends up with the people that poorest in society having twice the risk of ending, ending up with obesity. Yes. And then we know that those ultra processed foods, low in fiber, high in sugar and fat. Low in protein, low in protein as well. Yes. Studies show that it, we will keep eating them because we don't feel that same satiety we do with foods that are higher in fiber and you know, are more whole foods. So yes, so much complexity there. So many things. So we live in this environment now, like you're saying, so many calories available, fast food everywhere, lots of ultra processed food on one hand. Then the average BMI here in the United States of females is 27, which is considered overweight. But we have this thin ideal and weight stigma all thrown into that. Why do you think it's not more commonly understood that there is such a strong influence of genetics on body size and shape. Why is that something that's hard for us to believe? I think it's hard, hard for us to believe because we only know how we ourselves are feeling, right? Broadly, broadly speaking. And because eating and body weight is such an overt um, thing that you do, unlike your heart rate, unlike um, the, the way you feel internally, which you can't see. We know what everyone, when we go out, we know what everyone is eating and we know what their body size is. And so in, you're trying to judge to yourself, well, I'm full now. I've had this one burrito and I'm full. How come he's got to have two or whatever, right? And so I think that is part of the issue. It's such an overt um, expression okay, of yourself. We celebrate with food and everything and you can see what everyone else is doing. It's easy for us to judge. And I think that's, 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 that's the scenario. When we watch the Olympics or, or, you know, and we watch someone doing gymnastics and they do something amazing, and we go, wow, that's amazing. I can't do genetics, so I'm not going to judge anybody. Whereas you see someone else eat, 
we are all by definition experts at eating <laughs> because we have survived long enough for us to have this discussion. And so therefore, we try and paste our expertise. We're backseat drivers, backseat eaters, um, watching someone else eat. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great explanation. I haven't quite thought of it that way, but it makes sense because that's why we're inundated with influencers like, well, I look like this and I eat like this. Why can't you just do it like me? Eat, <laughs> it, eat like this and look like me. Yeah, it's simple enough, right? <laughs> so I love that. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit because I want to hear more about your experience when you did eat a plant-based diet for a month. So as part of a BBC program, you adopted a plant-based diet for a month. Tell us, what did you learn from that month-long experience? All right, so first, I did this for a program called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. Um, when the producers asked me, would I go on a, on, on a vegan, they asked me to go on a vegan diet, okay, and explore whether or not it was healthy. Now, just, just to be clear, obviously, I'm speaking to, to, to a plant-based community, but I just need to make sure it's clear that people go plant-based or vegan for many different reasons, ethical reasons, environmental reasons, all perfectly valid. But this is, uh, we're looking at it for health. I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified because I am a meatitarian. Okay, I am. I'm just going to admit this, admit this now. Well, I'm going, right, so, I'm, okay. I'm going to agree with you because I follow you on Instagram. So I know what you eat because you post it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was terrified. That being said, okay, aside from a, first, a bumpy first few days um, where... I, now, this is, a person, this is a personal thing, okay? Probably I'm not going to paste my experiences on anyone else. But what I tried to do was I tried to replace, I would cook meat items, but try and replace the meat items with something else, with lentils or something like that. So for example, I made um, spaghetti uh, uh, with a meat sauce, but instead of using spaghetti bolognese, but instead of using the meat, I would try and use lentils. Or if I made, in, in, in here in the UK, we would have a shepherd's pie, right? Which is made with minced lamb, but I use lentils. But the... I made it tasty. I can cook. I made it tasty, but I missed the meat because it was there saying shepherd's pie, but I'm not having any shepherd's pie. So the, the switch in my brain was, hang on a second. There are a billion other foods out there from many, many, many cultures, which are never designed for meat. So I'm, East, I'm Asian. I eat a lot of tofu. I've always eaten tofu. I've never been afraid of it. And then it occurred to me, wait a minute, when Chinese people have tofu in their dish, that tends to be the main protein. We don't add anything else in. Sometimes you do. But so I, if I cooked a tofu dish and I ate it, I was going, I've just had a tofu dish and I wandered off. And it was a vegan dish or plant-based dish without me even considering it. Then I says, ah, that's it. And so I ended up doing things like that where I could make a stew, a bean stew, and I just called it a bean stew, but I'm having a bean stew. And I made it tasty. I made it spicy. It was, it was delicious then I didn't actually miss the, the, the meat at all. Then I got a bank of these recipes. At the end of the 29 days, first of all, I, I lost a bunch of weight. I lost uh, four kilos times 2.2. I lost like nearly 10 pounds, okay? Just because I was on this, and I went plant-based. Incidentally, I went plant-based. So whole foods, I tried to stay away from potato chips and, and, and stuff. So I, I ate whole foods. I lost this weight. My blood cholesterol levels went down. I was going, wow. And then my problem was then, then I, I missed meat so much at the end of it. And this is, I know this is a terrible thing to say. I ended up gaining half that weight back on in five days. At which point I said, hold the horses, everybody. Okay, what is this going on? And so I have now adopted a flexitarian approach where actually two to three nights a week I eat um, a, a, a vegan food. I try not to eat meat at lunch, for example, um, or any dairy products or eggs at all at lunch. And that has been for me 
eye-opening because no longer do I fear the word vegan or plant-based because now I know what to cook. I know it tastes delicious. I know I can live on it. Um, and that has been, been, been my approach. I'm now a flexitarian. And after that experience, so not thinking, and, and my wife is shocked, she's stunned, uh, uh, not thinking it would actually influence my behavior. It's changed my behavior pre-vegan diet, uh, um, plant-based diet, and post-experiment night and day. I love it. Thank you for, for telling us that journey and that story. And I am a big advocate for people just adding more plants to their diet. So I do not judge you for your meat days that you eat meat. And I thank you. I thank you for trying to make a compromise. How can I eat more plants to support my health, to support how I feel, to support the planet too? Because we know that that's a big deal. Yep. We do. We can't ignore that. Yep. It's a big deal. Okay. I love how you were very honest with saying, when I try to make my familiar dishes with plants and without meat, it didn't work for me. It didn't work for my, the expectations of my taste buds. My brain was expecting something and it fell flat. So I had to just pick recipes that made sense to my brain as plant-based. And that's how I did it. And I think some people need to know that that's the case. So when I talk to people about adopting a plant-based diet or trying it, one of the ways is to, quote, veganize your favorite dishes. That works for some people. It didn't work for you. But another way is to find nine plant-based recipes that you enjoy, that you can rotate, and then try it out. So it sounds like you went that direction and you landed in this nice compromise for yourself of flexitarianism, which is good for you and good for the planet. So thank you for telling us about that journey. So one thing that I found interesting, so I'm going to... Uh, poke you a little bit on this one, okay? Mm -hmm. When you talked about this journey, you, you'd said your cholesterol dropped. And in mm -hmm. that sentence, you said, part of it will be explained by the weight loss. And mm -hmm. you know, maybe part of it also because the plant-based, I'm eating more fiber and all this stuff. Do you think it's possible to improve health and metabolic markers with dietary changes without intentional weight loss? Yes. 100%. Um, famously, for example, people that go on the Mediterranean diet, and there have been studies that have actually shown this, have shown improvements uh, primarily in heart health, as well as in incidences of cancer. Whereas the, uh, the, these are big studies. There was a study called the Predimet study in, um, in Spain, okay, which, which tried a number of different, different techniques. It wasn't like, no, they didn't make someone compare them to eating donuts. Okay? They, 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 they made I, it I compare to someone. I want to be in the donut arm. <laughs> <laughs> the donut, the, the donut, the donut arm. But but given that was not ethical, um, they actually showed that there was no big. So what they did, let me explain the study actually. So so what they did with the study was they tried, um, they they got they randomized a bunch of these are Spanish people. So this is this being the caveat. These are not these are not steak eating Texans. Okay, so these are um um uh, Spanish people who are used to the Mediterranean diet randomized them, and then had uh, uh, one following a uh, sort of like close to the American Heart uh, uh, Association healthy low-fat diet, and compared that to a Mediterranean diet, and we can look it up to see, but uh, uh, supplemented with either a liter of olive oil uh, a month, which is a lot, an extra liter, or a, a week, pardon me, or um, an extra 100 grams, I think, I forgot the exact numbers, of nuts a day. Okay, so there were three things. The, the low-fat diet versus Mediterranean with more olive oil, Mediterranean with more nuts. 
And they showed, for example, huge improvements in rates of heart disease, rates of cancer, but no change in body weight. So, um, um, so because presumably because of all the olive oil they were eating and nuts they were eating. Okay, um, but yes, uh, uh, undoubtedly show if you change the type of fat you're eating from a saturated fat uh, uh, diet to a more polyunsaturated fat, you will become healthier even though you're still taking in the fat calories, right? And, and so therefore, you're not going to lose a ton of weight. But it will be healthier for you if you change the kind of fat you're exposed to, if you change the amount of food and therefore the amount of fiber that you're actually exposed to. And you, you will maybe not lose weight, but you'll be healthier. Yeah. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. And the reason I asked that question is because myself and a lot of other physicians that practice lifestyle medicine, you know, there's a board certification now for lifestyle medicine. We see this all the time. Health markers can change so rapidly before you even lose weight. It's just that most of the time we're not looking so quickly. So we make these assumptions that, oh, it must have been the weight loss. But there are studies that show that within 10 days, people that required insulin for type 2 diabetes can be weaned off with insulin just by changing their diet without any significant weight loss yet. I've seen it in my clients. I do health coaching as well with adults with blood pressure changing so quickly within a matter of days after they've changed their diet. So I guess the reason I want to point that out is because some people, they get stressed and they've tried to diet so many times in their life. They don't feel it's sustainable for them. They gain it back plus more. And then they just give up and they're like, well, I can't lose weight. So there's no hope for me. I'm just stuck with this condition. Whereas if you change what you're eating, the quality of your food, the composition of your diet, you may be able to improve those health markers without there being any significant weight loss. So, and if you, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And if you couple that with just increasing your activity yes. just a bit, I'm not, talking, I'm not talking about pumping iron in a gym. I'm talking about if you have a garden, a bit of gardening, walking your dog up just, just you know, maybe an extra 20 minutes a day when you're doing it. If you couple this change in a, in, in a healthier diet, however you choose to, to deploy that healthy diet with a little bit more exercise, that will, will make... You know, it will make a huge difference to your health, even if it doesn't change your weight. Absolutely. And well-being. And well-being. Correct. Because we know that physical activity Mm. just feels good, especially when we're not doing it in this punishing way where we have to earn our brownie or burn off the pizza or whatever. When we're moving because it feels good and it's also decreasing stress. And sometimes you can use it as a form of connection, too, like when you go for a walk with your friends or your family. So absolutely, you are a lifestyle medicine practitioner. Thanks so much, Dr. Yo.
Amen. <laughs> okay, so this is a bit of a specific question and something that I'm very interested yep. to hear your opinion. De novo lipogenesis. So basically what that means is you are making fat out of carbohydrates or other foods, some protein as well, potential. If you're eating excess of these foods or excess of this macronutrient, your body can potentially store it as fat. In the plant-based community, there are many experts that claim that it's not a big cause of increased fat mass, especially if you're eating a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet, where you're not cooking with any oils or eating a lot of extra over fats like avocado and things like that. And they have cited studies that support this, that the percentage of de novo lipogenesis, even if you're eating above your calorie, you know, the amount of calories you're burning a day, like even if you're eating excess, that there's only a very small percentage that's actually turning into fat. What are your thoughts on this? Have you seen these different studies or do you feel like that's all baloney? So <laughs> the thing about the, the, okay, I think there's two, there are two parts to this answer. Are there going to be, do people deal with nutrients in different ways? And I think the answer is going to be yes. because it's, it's called in the, in the, in the field, nutrient partitioning. So in other words, for every calorie of carb, fat, or protein, what do you do with it? Do you burn it? Do you store it? And what exactly do you actually do with it? That's the first thing. There's going to be a variation between you and me and my wife and, some, and, and someone else. But the thing about it is that, that people think, uh, that people have to remember, the vast majority, the vast majority of excess energy that we have is going to be stored as fat, however they've come into your body. Whether or not it comes in as protein, carbs, or as fat in, in, um, in, in of itself. So I think there needs to be a situation in which we're measuring the carbons that are actually coming in, so to speak, in, in, in food. And if you have too much, it will all be turned to fat. It doesn't matter what you try and do with the body. There are certain things that, that, that are different and have to do with metabolic flexibility. So people that go on keto, for example, they say, well, I'm going to try and get my body to burn more fat rather than carbs. And there is some evidence for getting your body tuned and you, you used to doing that but you will still convert anything that you don't use immediately largely into fat. Our body stores, roughly speaking, if you include the glycogen for carbs, 2,000, 2,500 calories of glycogen in our body. We don't have any stores of protein in our body. We're, all protein in our body is active. Okay, So in other words, they're either used to build muscle or to repair. Everything else, anywhere from 90 to 180,000 calories, depending on the size, in fat. And so 2,500 calories in carbs, 100,000 100, calories and north of that in fat, and no protein. So it doesn't really matter, I think, about the slight differences in de novo lipogenesis, which I think will occur. I agree with you, will occur. Because at the end of the day, everything that you don't burn immediately will be turned into fat. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much for that answer. Mm -hmm. What do you wish more people knew? I wish more people knew that all of us behave differently around food. I think we, we, we've touched on this before. So th because the moment you do that and the moment you know that, well, someone, because people always say, look, you know, you, you need to exercise your willpower. Okay. Don't eat that. Don't say, say no to that because of your willpower. And it's easy to exercise your willpower, whatever that is, on an individual meal. But actually over a lifetime, just this is the house always wins scenario. Um, you know, someone will make a slightly different decision every single time, ending up a different body size. So I think we all behave differently around food. We all have our own internal metering into how much we need to eat and how much we think is enough. 
And people need to know that. And the moment people know that, then people understand why they're people of different sizes wandering around. Yeah, Ugh, I love that so much. Okay, if you had a magic wand and you could make anything come true, what would it be? Okay, let me, let me, let's go broad. I would end poverty. And I think that would be the first thing that, 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 that I would do. Because poverty is associated um, with so many different diseases, including obesity. Actually, as we are emerging from, for whatever term, from COVID, just as an example, which actually in very many ways, COVID has been a clash between two pandemics, um, um, a, a viral pandemic and an obesity pandemic, okay, together, one making each other worse. Um, so I would remove poverty because I think that would solve, without even a single drug, without a single thing, it would solve a large number of diseases. That is what I would do with, with, the, with the little magic wand if I had one. I love it. That's beautiful. And I agree. There's so many different issues associated with poverty that affect our health and well-being. And even just the stress, the stress itself, even if you just looked at the stress of having a low socioeconomic status, that alone affects health so much. So it's a great choice. Now I want to shift gears again and talk a little bit about you personally. Do you have a morning routine? If so, what is it? Um, I have a normal morning routine. I can tell you my pandemic morning routine, which hopefully is, is, is changing. My morning routine is pre-pandemic and now hopefully post-pandemic-ish is I would tend to wake up, I cycle to work and I cycle at the bottom. I, I live about 15 miles away from work. And so, and so I, I cycle to work. When I get to work, I have my cup of black, I have a shower and I have my, my cup of black coffee and sometimes a banana. That's my morning routine uh, during the weekdays. I love it. That's great. Yeah, I'm going to be moving my office soon. And right now I'm close enough that I, I walk most of the time. It's just half a mile. But soon it's going to be about five miles, which doesn't seem like that much, but I don't like going very far. So <laughs> I want everything to be like half a mile from where I am. That's my decrease expenditure of energy thing too with my jeans. But um, my plan is to bike to work and I'm having the the building is going to be built to our specifications. And for my office, I'm planning to have a shower there so that I can. That is important. Even in the middle of the summer. Yeah. Because, you know, getting sweaty. Because otherwise you go and you smell. Yeah. You've got to make it easy for exactly. people to, 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 to be active. Yeah. Yes, for sure. But I told my husband I kind of wanted an e-bike. Do you think that's cheating? Because it's uphill the whole way back. I want to know your opinion, Dr. Yo. If I get an e-bike, is that cheating? Because he thinks it's cheating. So uh, <laughs> I'm a cyclist. No, let, I think this is the more, more important point. If an e-bike will make sure that you will stick on the bike more than you are going to be in the car, then the e-bike is the way to go. And I think that is the answer. What people have, you're right, I do have a lot of uh, uh, people that are snooty about e-bikes. At the end of the day, what, has e -bikes, what have e-bikes done? They have made sure that more people have been, have been active, people who would never have considered bikes before. So um, and my, my wife has an e-bike, which is why I'm allowed to speak. You better <laughs> um, say something nice about e-bikes then. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Domestic bliss is hard won. No, I don't, I don't, think, it's, I don't think it's cheating because if, if it's the switch that you require to be on a bike every single day or most days rather than just one or two days a week on a sunny day, um, then, I, then I don't think it's cheating at all. I love it. That's a great answer. And yeah, my husband is a mountain biker. So he's the kind that he's cycling straight up mountains and, you know, thinks he's super hardcore. 
So I'm just going to get the e-bike and not listen to him. So, okay. Next question. What personal habit are you most proud of and why? Oh my God. Personal habit. Um, I don't know. I think, um, I think this is, this can be a positive thing and a negative thing is that I am a person of habit, shall we say. And when I get something, my cycling to work, just as an example, the moment I get something entrained in me as a habit, I find it um, actually really, really quite easy to, to, to keep to it. I don't, I don't feel the temptation not to do it because I get myself into a, in, in, into a rhythm and I do it. My wife thinks, oh my God, he's such, a, he's such a boring person. But this also, sadly, includes if I go to my favorite restaurant or, or, or takeout, I order exactly the same thing every time. And my wife goes, really? Are you going to have that again? <laughs> and I think that's part of it. So the positive thing is the moment I build it into a habit, I'll actually stick to it. I'm, I'm quite um, not determined. I just stick to it. Yeah. I don't even have to think too hard about it. And that probably is something that's good. But it's a bad thing where then I can be a man of habit, which means that I end up eating the same thing. Yeah. But so it's good because you build a comfort. It really truly becomes a habit because we know it's a habit when it's easy. You don't have to think about it. But what you're saying is that for some things, you get stuck in that zone of comfort and it's hard for you to step outside that comfort zone, trying different foods or, you know, maybe different, you know, who knows, traveling or whatever. Some people, they, they know their familiar things. They're used to it. It's easy for them. And then moving beyond that's a little bit more difficult. So, so what has actually been good for me, uh, and I'm saying this not only because, because my wife can't hear me, is actually my wife's the opposite for me. She likes everything to be different all the time. And so me, and I've been with my wife for a long time, but actually being with her has then made me, made me do different things. And so that's been, for me, as a man of habit, it's, it, it makes things good and running in the house, okay? You know, the car is always gassed up, you know, the tires are always pumped and things like that. But we also do different things because my wife wants to do different things. So between the two of us, we hopefully have a healthy life. I love it. That's the beauty of relationships, right? She is that spark of spontaneity and you can help her to keep the habits too. So both of you are helping each other out, influencing each other. That's wonderful. Well, Dr. Yo, this has been fantastic. I so appreciate your time and thank you so much for all the work that you do. Like I said, it's so valuable. So keep doing the work, keep giving us the research so that we can learn more about ourselves, one another, but also that hopefully we can start decreasing this weight stigma because weight stigma is deadly. Where can listeners connect with you and support your work? They can connect with me on either Instagram or Twitter, Giles Yo, just all one word. Um, I have a podcast. I say I have a podcast. I do have a small podcast called Dr. Giles Yo, Choose the Fact. <laughs> um, and, and that's it. You, you, can actually, you, you can actually find me there. And actually, what I'm doing, I'm, I, I'm hoping it will be released actually in the, in, in, you'll be able to get it in the US as well. Um, I'm doing a three-part series for BBC Radio 4 here, actually called Plant-Based Promises. Oh. It's a three-part series exploring plant-based foods, actually specifically in the faux meat, faux dairy um, um, area. I will, uh, um, it's going to be on BBC Sounds, which is their uh, online thing. You're not going to get it live, um, but, but, but that as well. So anyway, there we go. That's enough self-promotion. I love it. I'll have to look <laughs> for that. I'll definitely be interested in hearing about that. That's wonderful. And then can you give us the title of your two books as well? Okay. So uh, my first book was called Gene Eating, um, The Story of Human Appetite. Um, and the second book was called Why Calories Don't Count. Beautiful. And yes, I read the second book in preparation of this interview. 
and I've only gotten through half of the first book, which is wonderful so far. So I do recommend both of them. Gives you a lot of background and insight. And you're hilarious, by the way. So you have great humor. So it was very nice to read it because I felt like I was just sitting down with you and getting to know your personality. So I appreciate that in books too. It doesn't feel so dry and scientific, which is nice. Thank you. Okay, final thought. What final Hmm. thought do you have for parents particularly who are concerned about the size of their child's body? I think badgering your child and over-worrying about it is never going to help. And I think the way to do it is not to worry about the amount of food, but trying to get healthier food into and get them to get excited about healthier food, cook healthier food, and not worry about the amount because you just get the healthy food that, that that's actually in it. That will make a huge difference and not get some and not get the kids um, fixated on food. Yes, I love it. Create that supportive, healthy environment where you're offering those foods, you're cooking those foods with your children, you're going to the farmer's markets, doing those things and make your environment that positive environment and let the rest kind of take care of itself. I love that, Absolutely. Dr. Yo. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, y'all. That was such a great episode. I really enjoyed talking with Dr. Yo. I wish I could sit down with him at dinner and just have a full out discussion and ask him all of these questions. He is very thoughtful has lots of different areas of expertise to pull from because of his research in genetics and working with other researchers. So I really, really enjoyed it. So here are my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, body weight is not a choice. Number two, body weight is influenced by our brain and specifically our genetically influenced behaviors. So if you're like me, And whenever you see the donuts or the cookies, it's hard for you to resist. That's probably your genes talking through your brain, through your behaviors, okay? Number three, body shape is directly genetically determined. So if your body looks like your mom's or your aunt's, you know, it's the genes in your family determining your body shape. Number four, poverty and food insecurity influence body weight. As we heard from Dr. Yo in the UK, that bottom 20% compared to the top 20%, there's great differences in body size there. Number five, you can improve your health and your metabolic factors without weight loss by making these lifestyle changes. Eat more plants, eat more fiber, move your body, lower your stress or manage your stress. These are things that you can actually do to help yourself feel better, to potentially affect your blood sugar levels, your blood pressure, your cholesterol levels, all of these things without having to lose a pound. So I want you to take that away and remember that, that's very important. And then finally, sadly, if you eat excess from any source, any of the macronutrients, carbohydrates, fat, protein, if you're eating in excess, once you reach your limits on your glycogen storage, you are going to store the excess as fat. So 
It's one of those things to know about the human body. This was a great episode. I hope you loved it. Let me know if you did or if you had any other questions. I'm planning to have more researchers on the show to talk about these topics, to talk about the science of body size and body weight and learn as much as we can about it. So thank you so much, veggie lovers, for sticking with me on this episode. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I wanna share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.